Do, do you um, work at an AMC? I do work at an AMC. Yeah. Almost what's over your favorite movie? Position. What's your favorite movie on your name tag? Because I always try sunshine to... of the spotless nice. mind. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always try yeah. to stare at that when I go to our AMC. Yeah, and, uh... yeah. I do the same thing whenever I have like a new coworker or something. I don't like, go to an AMC all that often, so I have no clue what the fuck you guys are talking about. On their name yeah, tag, like... they have their name, and then under their name, they have their favorite movie. So I, like, you know, oh, you know, like, oh, all right. Oh. Oh, uh, Big Mama's house, or <laughs> Little Mermaid for every girl I've ever seen work at a, or like a really recent movie, which blows my mind. Like, oh, my favorite movie is The Dark Knight Rises, or yeah. um, I'm thinking of all time, really. There's yeah, I know. There's one. There's one girl I work with who has World War Z on there. <laughs> Another guy was just like, "Do you just really like zombies?" She's like, "No, nah, I just didn't know what to put." So you know. Or was he? I would obsess over that decision. I would be like, okay, do I want The Godfather Part 2 or do I want like some obscure art film from the 60s? What do I do? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've obsessed over it myself and I actually might change mine at some point. I'm thinking about like, most people like, I'm surprised to haven't even heard of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind when at the theater. They're like, they're like, oh, Danny's like that weird, you know? Like, <laughs> I, w- I have the reputation there of just like listening to like, the obscure music and reading the random books and like <laughs> talking about the movies but i don't know we get along i think eternal sunshine's a movie that gets better every time i see it i gotta rewatch that thing yeah because i haven't actually seen it in kind of a while so but yeah it's a fantastic movie anyway i wonder if like i wanted to tell if i worked at an amc i want to tell management that my favorite movie is old boy they wouldn't know that old boy is one word so it would be old space boy <laughs> i'm just like Totally beats the purpose. I'm like, okay, fucking uh, God, the Godfather. You should, you should, if you ever were to work at an AMC, you should say, I want old boy, but you have to put it in Korean characters, otherwise I quit. <laughs> they don't understand it. They, be they don't deserve to understand what it is. <laughs> Look it up. Type it in yeah, your computer. You put... Wait, how do... I am now the Jean-Luc Godard of theater workers. Welcome to the Abandoned Theater Podcast over at speakersscreens.tumble.com, also known as Speakers and Screens, which is the name of the blog that I just gave the URL for before the name of the blog. I'm Robert Beck. I'm a movie and music writer for Speakers and Screens, and with us as always is... TJ Dwayne, another writer and podcaster for the Tumblr site. Also, I have to say, you should go read the site. Because it's good. Yeah. We have some good essays. For example, my Barry Lyndon essay. Uh, or... uh, hold on, hold on, <laughs> we, hold on. We got someone else to introduce. Okay. <laughs> if you've been listening for a while and you've just been hearing us talking to this one random dude that you've never heard before, well, you don't listen to us very often because he was on two podcasts ago. But we have Danny Spateri Jr. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> yes, Danny Spateri, uh, podcaster and occasional writer for Speakers and Screens. And, uh... <laughs> We figured that before, uh, in the beginning of every podcast, before we start with the movies, we're going to talk about some articles we've written for the website, movie-wise, uh, since the last podcast went up. So, uh, TJ, why don't you go first? 
So I have written two essays since our previous uh, podcast, and it would have been one, but we had a we had a we had technical, technical difficulties last time. So <laughs> so um, this is kind of a repeat for people who are maybe in the NSA and listening to what we say. But otherwise, here we are. We have Barry Lyndon. I wrote about Barry Lyndon, and you should read it because it's about how Kubrick is a master of tone. Naturally, what I was interested in that movie. Um, last time I watched it. And I also wrote a much shorter, but then Robbie <laughs> correctly ribs me in going, it's still pretty long, um, essay on... Uh, well, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not that it's pretty long. It's it's longer than most of what I write. Which oh, okay. Spe- which speaks more of me than it does of you. Well, I will say that I, I know I'm too long-winded when I put my essays into Word and double-space them like a paper, and they're 12-page papers. So... <laughs> My, my English major comes out a bit too much, I think, sometimes. But I wrote one over Synecdoche, New York, and sort of how it... It's a movie about asking questions about life as opposed to giving any sort of answer and how even though it's kind of an extreme version of these questions that we never find answers to, it also does reflect how many of us do kind of question why we live, for, you know, for what reason, etc. And how those questions are always important, and I'm glad there's a film, especially a awesome Charlie Kaufman film that deals with that sort of thing. What have you written, Robbie? This technically went up before the last podcast went up, but it I wrote it after our after the podcast was recorded. Um, I wrote a, a review of a Romanian drama by the name of Beyond the Hills. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't want to say much of what it's about, but I will say it's it's like a top five quality for me for the the whole year. And on Halloween, I realized Halloween was almost a month ago. But I wrote my five favorite low-budget horror films. Uh, I wrote an article talking about those. And yeah, Halloween was a while ago, but horror films are eternal. Just a few days ago, I wrote a full review of a film we're going to be talking about today. Hopefully, All is Lost. We so, don't write um, many reviews, really. Uh, I'm starting to I'm starting to try to do it a little more often. So, um... You'd, you'd think that since the Hunger Games opened this week, we'd start with the Hunger Games, considering it's the most popular movie this week, but we don't care! And we're going to start with 12 Years a Slave. Oh, yes. Uh, so, TJ, why don't you explain the plot of 12 Years a Slave? 12 Years a Slave is the third and most uh, widespreadly... Um, well, I, I would say that this movie has the most acclaim of any... McQueen yeah. movie thus far in his yeah. career. Uh, 12 Years a Slave. Like okay, all three of Steve McQueen's movies have dealt with the human condition and deep, deep pain, uh, re- depending on the sort of setting that each film has. Hunger dealt with the, the hunger strikes whenever the um, IRA, I almost said NRA, and that would have been terrible. Uh, the IRA. <laughs> IRA prisoners. <laughs> yes. Hunger um, strikes and, in the 80s. Yes, thank you. Shame dealt with, uh, is probably his most controversial film, dealt with uh, sex addiction and sort of uh, obsession in general. While now we have his latest film, 12 Years a Slave, which is dealing with the topic of American slavery. Though I would claim that this film is more worldly than just an American problem, as Steve McQueen would. But yes, uh, we. Yes. this is a true story about Sol- Solomon Northup. And he wrote a memoir about it that I believe Danny has either read or is currently reading. I actually just finished it, yeah. The I almost picked it up yesterday, but I don't know if I have time right now. But the yeah, it's relatively short. It's a, it, he wrote his memoir about his experience as a free black man in the North who is kidnapped and taken into slavery during the 1800s, obviously, 
And I, I was just reading that, um, or I just listened to an interview with Stephen Queen and Stephen Colbert that it was written the year, or it was published the year before um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and it was a huge success. But the second that Uncle Tom's Cabin came out, um, it like People eclipsed. forgot about it. Exactly. And, and the thing huh. about Uncle Tom's Cabin is it's fiction, while 12 Years a Slave yeah. is nonfiction. So, hmm. so there's that. <laughs> I think that... Um, to, to start a conversation on the film, I think that Twelve Years a Slave is a film uh, is a film that does not offer easy catharsis until arguably the very end. But even then, it's not really easy because it's tinged with yeah. the pain yeah. of time lost with one's family. But it's a film that could have been easy Oscar bait, even for an art film director like Steve McQueen. But they really did a great job of looking at the idea of slavery in an interesting fashion as opposed to something that is going to win Oscars because it's making everyone cry, per se. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the only moment that I can consider to be tear-jerking or whatever is maybe, maybe the end, but even, even that is relatively reserved. As compared oh, yeah. To like, yeah. yeah like, an, it's no color purple. <laughs> that's true. And I think that's why the film uh, succeeds. I mean... It's, this is the kind of film that I think about more and more the farther I get away from it, and in a great way where it has become my favorite film of the year because it has this power where it kind of sticks in my brain and I keep thinking about it. I want to go yeah. see it because it's going to be out of out of the closest theater to me. It's going to be out by Wednesday when they get all their Thanksgiving movies, but it's just sticking with me. I think a, a large part of that has to do with the way that McQueen and his DP, Sean Bobbitt, filmed this movie. They shot the movie in a way that is just detached almost but actually psychologically heightens the pain of the of the story and they kind of deal yeah. with it in an intellectual way as opposed to pure emotion although it is incredibly intense and like you know it makes your heart skip a few beats during the uh three whipping scenes in the movie yeah yeah yes i'm glad you mentioned those because uh there's Three scenes in particular that have stuck with me so much, and one especially that I agree with you. I, I keep thinking about the movie, and it and it, it sticks with me in a way that few movies like really do. And there's one scene in particular which I don't really think qualifies as a spoiler. It's just an attempted hanging um, yeah. of uh, everyone's Solomon. everyone's talking about it, so it wouldn't be a spoiler. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not really like a. a like a plot um, reveal anyway. Not that people don't already know the plot, but anyway, um, it's a scene where these white men attempt to hang uh, Solomon Northup, and it's great. The One of the most brilliant uses of music all year, no question for me, is uh, the use of a Colin Stetson song. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, it's like the opening track on a Colin Stetson album where it's just his saxophone like giving off this like resounding like... You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, that exact sound. And it, it just gets louder oh and louder. Every, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it just gets louder and louder every time it comes back. Because there's a little there's a pause, and then it comes back louder, and then there's a pause, and it comes back louder. Mm -hmm. And it's just so uncomfortable. And then he, they event, the people trying to hang him eventually get stopped. So what happens is he is left, like, 
hanging low enough that his toes can touch the mud below him, which keeps him alive, but high enough that he has to struggle in order to stay there. And, and it, goes the camera does, it goes on for ever. a long time. Yes, the camera stays there not only to show him struggling for a very long time, it shows even the sun go down, but it shows people around him walking by and not doing anything. Some slaves because they really can't. want to, but can't. Yeah, and then, and the you know, eventually one... Playing? Yeah, oh my goodness. Uh-huh. It's and just w- it's, one person gives him water because there won't be yes. any evidence of that. And then she quickly runs away. Yeah, it's I think arguably the most powerful like just pure like just moment in the movie for me. I think it's the most powerful moment. It's the best film scene I think of the year in my opinion. It, it, it's the yeah. one that stuck with me. That's really uh, it, like and then the the Colin Stetson track cuts out like when all the people leave and then you just hear the yeah. sound of the cicadas and then the kids playing and the people working in the background. Like I, I think it is a perfect microcosm of the entire film because yeah. it shows that the evils of slavery are accepted at every level in the South, where even like yes. the children playing like have kind of accepted that this is just a fact of life. And and then when the sound cuts out and you hear those those peaceful sounds of the of the background, you hear Solomon like struggle the, the guttural noises and the slippery you could say the slippery slope of the society just under him just like the mud squishing and it just yeah. the sound design the cinematography the acting everything about that scene is just it's also it's, just it's also worth noting yeah. that the slaver that he is under is Benedict Cumberbatch who is a ba- plays a Baptist preacher who's actually like. As compared to everyone else that's working with him, all the other mm-hmm. slavers, fucking Michael, Michael Fassbender, who comes with late, mm-hmm. who he comes into later, Bandit Cumberbatch oh, yeah. is actually a fairly decent guy. Yeah, he's, um, he's definitely yeah. the most benevolent. Yeah, he's still a slave owner, but you he's know, still a slaver, relatively and, speaking. You know. Yes, uh, he's 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 the nicest one, and yeah, and that translated in the book. I, Solomon in the book makes it clear he's just like. Ford is a decent man. <laughs> and I'm like, that's one of the best things about the book. And I think it was translated well to this the movie is that Solomon seems really um, devoted to painting an honest portrait of the situation. And he doesn't want to um, denounce anyone who doesn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he was more moderate about the way he spoke about these people than I would have been in that situation. I mean, you know, he, he I think when McQueen picked up the book, I'm glad he noted that because there's so many reasons why it's important to kind of note the different levels of like the cruelty of a slaver. I thought Cumberbatch did a good job. Fassbender was great in his role. I mean, it was not even remotely likable character, but you know. Well, um, the good good thing about Fassbender's acting, and and I think we we could transition into the acting of the movie. Fassbender is surprisingly reserved in his performance. Like when I saw the trailers, I was thinking he was going to be just over the top, like in a powerful, like creepy way, but it actually in a a lot better. DiCaprio kind of way. Yeah, and 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 again, uh, we said this in our in our aborted podcast last week that we that we'll never see the air, uh, see, see the light of day. But I mean, I love Django Unchained for what that movie's doing. I really love that movie. But this movie is a completely different movie. They're not, yeah. other than the fact that they're about slavery, they're not comparable. Because yeah. Leo's great in his role, but Fassbender's great here. And just, I mean, yes, his character's an alcoholic. He'll, he'll walk around with one of the children of his slaves with no pants on and a bottle of of, of, uh, of alcohol on the other hand, just walking around like with this gate, kind of harassing his slaves in a way that's not like completely violent physically, but is violent psychologically. And just, yeah. but you also, like, he's pathetic. Epps is a pathetic person. I want to talk yeah. about my 
two favorite moments of the film that mm-hmm. are opposite or not or that are other other than the ones that people are talking about. This one occurs very early in the film after he's um yeah, cap- cap- captured by these two con men, one of them played by Taron Killam, which are, which are two by the way, two performances that are totally over the top. Like they might as well have been, "Oh, hello. What are you doing there?" <laughs> are you talking about uh Hamilton and Brown? Yeah. The Scoot McNary and the uh, other one. Oh, oh, that was that was Scoot McNary. I didn't catch that. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, one of the, the artists. You know. He's captured by them, and he's uh, chained up in like um kind of like a basement, I guess. And he's about he's gonna be sold into slavery later. Near the end of that scene, he looks out of like a, a little bit of window ish thing, and just looks out into the city and like screams for help. And the camera pans up, and you see like an industrialized city, and in the back, you see Capitol Hill. <laughs> that was yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And then later, when he gets sold to Edwin Epps, you hear a voiceover of Michael Fassbender talking about how uh, when a slave does his master wrong, he gets forty lashes or whatever the hell it is. Mm-hmm. And then you realize he's reading from a Bible, and he says oh, it's yeah. scripture. I-, I think that's so important too, like the fact that. These people, I mean, which um, I think brings us to a scene that I, I believe you had trouble with, uh, yeah. problems with, was the was how religion totally okays slavery in the eyes of these people. Brad Pitt, with his Aldo Rain voice, plays a Canadian <laughs> um, abolitionist who is just work doing, uh, just working in the South, kind of traveling, helping out where people need, making some cash, and he is that has a conversation with Edwin Epps and it's sort of the two like it could be viewed as preachy it can be viewed as a scene in which well well Robbie uh how about you explain it so I don't butcher your your viewpoint I don't want to do that well here's the thing uh Steve McQueen's first film Hunger I love I probably still consider it his best film because he's just observing he's just and I feel like that's the that's probably his best asset is just observing human horror and human pain and human suffering and all that. He's great at that. With Shame, which I think is a much less successful film, and one of the reasons being the more I sort of come away from the film, I kind of see Steve McQueen almost wagging his finger at the audience saying, hey, look at this guy. He has too much sex. He's a sex addict. Don't do that. And it didn't seem like that was playing playing to Steve McQueen's strengths at all. This film is mostly, like, 99% of the time, really more of a return to that, to that hunger style that I like far more, except for this one scene that y'all probably disagree with me on. And uh, Danny pointed out to me that this scene actually occurs verbatim in the book, and there's really no reason that Solomon would just make it up. So I, I don't doubt that was a thing that actually happened, but I feel like cinematically it didn't work. What I'm talking about is the first scene that Brad Pitt shows up. He's a, he's the guy that eventually alerts the authorities and frees Solomon, which is not a spoiler because it's history. Well, it's also <laughs> called 12 Years a Slave, not like... Uh, not hey, I am a time. slave now. <laughs> hey, I'm a it's slave not... now. What you gonna do? Okay, I I view I view this whole this whole scene as basically it's a conversation about slavery between Michael Fassbender and Brad Pitt, and I I I kind of saw the whole thing as Brad Pitt lecturing him and lecturing the audience, telling us why slavery is so bad, 
And I felt that this was a, a total deviation from the rest of the film because at this point it's been about an hour and 50, hour 45 minutes of showing you exactly everything that Brad Pitt is telling you. And, and it was kind of odd to me that Brad Pitt is the producer of the film and he was casted as the person to be the one that tells the audience why slavery is bad. And it just <laughs> felt like a re- it felt it felt like for a second that Steve McQueen lost faith in his audience and and had had to tell them. Maybe that wasn't his intention intention, but that's sort of how it came out to me. Yeah, you know, I, I understand why you'd feel that way, and I think there are a couple purposes the scene uh, serves. On top of that, though, and I, I think one of them is just to introduce Bass's character. Like it was important for Solomon to see that kind of converse, that kind of conversation occurring because that's what took him yeah. off. Like maybe this is a guy I can trust. You know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, and and once again, coming back to the book, when he notes that scene, he also notes how Epps like doesn't really take him seriously, and you can see it in the movie too. Epps is kind of like he he entertains the argument for a little bit, and then he just kind yeah. of laps it off. Yeah, he just and that's his eyes just pretty much exactly yeah, and that's important too because it shows that the people on that plantation, the the white, you know, like Epps and all of his colleagues, they didn't take Bass that seriously. So they didn't really suspect Bass of helping Solomon. You know, if that conversation had panned out with like Epps, you know, you know, looking at them with a suspicious eye or something, then, you know, that would create a different kind of tension as to whether or not Solomon uh, could have escaped. But knowing that they didn't take Bass's words completely seriously was, I think, important to the like plausibility of Solomon succeeding in his plan to use Bass to help him escape. Yeah, um, I also I can understand I also that. Think... I just I just don't think that cinematically it worked. Yeah, as well. I understand yeah. that what you mean there. So yeah. The uh, I also think that um, while he is this moralizing character, he also isn't the uh, the Brad Pitt character still is controlled by society, still under its sway because he is afraid of of saving Solomon. And it it really, if you look at the way he ages between when Brad Pitt leaves and between the end of the movie, uh, uh, whenever he's finally freed, and even though that within the movie that's not that much time. It's like 10 minutes or so. You could tell that he's aged quite a while. He has a lot more gray hair whenever he's uh, rescued as opposed to when he's talking to Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. So it kind of shows that even though Pitt did end up helping Solomon, uh, the Bass character, he still didn't do it in a timely manner. So like, so he was kind of not in control of the situation. Am I weird that, yeah. this, am I weird that this film didn't feel like 12 years? Like, if it wasn't... If it wasn't called 12 Years a Slave, and if it wasn't historically 12 years being a slave, then it almost just, I don't know, I like it. Like it, it felt a little ambiguous how much time had passed between certain events. I think you're it's completely true. right. But I also yeah. think that I like that about the film. Because oh, yeah, it's, it's not a complaint. I'm just pointing it out. No, yeah, no. And even if it was or not, it doesn't, I mean, I think you're completely right. The It is hard to tell what time it is, and I think that totally... I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you'd agree with this. Adds to the sort of dream. At, I mean, it feels like a nightmare. I mean, it's the movie's yeah. depicted realistically, but it has this sort of nightmare tone. Like, and even in certain ways, certain scenes are filmed. Not only dealing with time, which I find interesting, but also like the scene where Paul Giamatti is selling the slaves, and then that one woman's being ripped from her children, and oh. and then you sort of, and then you have uh, Solomon Northup playing the fiddle, playing the piano, or playing the violin in a fiddle fashion. Like, as pretty much Rome is burning for this woman. And it's just, like, this really bizarre, like, clash of tones that is done incredibly well. 
I think it's a great supporting turn by by Giamatti. He yeah. does a great job in that sort of like heartless salesman role. But uh, the scene where Paul Dano is singing the old minstrel song, um, oh, yeah. a title, uh, the title I'll just uh, not say. Yeah. Cut with the, the the images of slaves working. It has this sort of nightmare fashion, and and, and then the, the very dizzying cinematography, Sean Bob Sean Bobbitt cinematography, in the one of the best scenes of the movie. We haven't even talked about uh, the women, uh, but L- oh, Lupita yeah. Nyong'o, which probably my favorite performance from the movie is Pat- yeah. Patsy. She, oh, God, that that scene's the one that gets to me. She yeah. just wants to be clean, oh, and then yeah. she gets whipped, and then she makes Solomon do it. Or he, I'm sorry, he Epps just makes Epps Solomon makes do, it. do it. Yeah. But but the way that the film is shot, it's one take, and it's just handheld. Uh, Sean Bobby going back to his uh, career as a, as a news cameraman, just like twirling around it, and it just has this very like nightmare kind of feel to it, which I think that the music, the cinematography, and the way that time is experienced in the movie kind of add to this sort of nightmare aspect to it, where this could never really happen, but it still feels so real, and it did happen, even though it was sort yeah. of a nightmare. Yeah, I think that the whole time kind of being ambiguous, too, is like, I feel like when you're in a really awful situation, like, one of the sources of hope can be knowing when it's going to end, and knowing that, you know, there is an end. And I feel like the fact that it makes time so unclear throughout the whole movie kind of mirrors Solomon's situation because he never knew if he was going to get out and he never knew how much time he had. And that was a a major like loss of of hope for him. You know, it was never a finite 12 years for him until it actually ended, you know? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Sarah Paulson was great too. Oh, 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 Sarah Paulson. And, uh, and Alfred Woodard in a one scene. Oh yeah. (laughs) Uh, She's really good. Surprised how much they underused uh, Covenjene Wallace. Oh yeah, she plays oh, yeah. Solomon's daughter. Only in one scene. It was nice, nice to see her again. But and, and yeah. Dwight Henry, uh, pl- I believe, is the slave who dies when he works too hard in the plantation. Yeah, um, Uncle Abram was his name. Yeah, he's the second build yeah. actor because it's order of appearance. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So we had Henry. Michael K. Williams from The Wire. Yeah. yeah. That, that scene was disturbing. Was... Yeah. yeah, that scene was that was actually a change from the book, which was interesting. Um, the I mean, he, a lot of people have complained that th- th- it feels like, hey, look at this famous actor. But I mean, yeah. considering the, fir- the the first fa- filmed version of this movie is called The Odyssey of Solomon Northup. The uh, I don't I don't know if it's a made for TV version or a film version. I don't know, but the idea of it being an Odyssey, like the actual Odyssey written by Homer, kind of helps that cause because. To, to support saying, well, this is why we just keep having these new characters introduced because, I mean, it's very episodic. I think that yeah. that also goes back to the time thing as well. All right, so uh, it <laughs> seems like seems like we're sort of all in agreement. Um, I might be I might be the lowest as compared to y- y'all. I mean, I, I really like this movie. It's in my you know it'd be in my top fifteen or top twenty, whatever whatever this year. But I just feel mm-hmm. I feel like it's being a little bit overhyped. If I were to be a Debbie Debbie Downer about it. I don't think it's quite the transcendent masterpiece that some people are saying it is, but uh, but obviously it's you know one of the better, not Oscar bait, but sort of you, you know Oscar movies, you know quote prestige pictures that you're gonna see this year. So yeah, I mean if if it wins best picture this year, I'm not gonna complain. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't complain either, really. Although Upstream Color really deserves it. <laughs> well, it Upstream be, Color, it won't be, it won't be nominated, but it deserves it. 
But Upstream Color yeah. and 12 Years a Slave are competing at the Gotham Awards for Best Picture. Really? Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, it's... actually, uh, the Eighth Embodied Saints, um, Before Midnight, and then one other independent film. Like, it's actually a really good lineup of five movies. Um, Do you know what the other the one Gotham is? I don't, I can, off the top of my head, I can I check. Not. Right now, I'm actually looking at it. I think it's... Yeah, um, it's, it's Ain't Them Body Saints, Upstream Color... Right inside, it's the new Coen Brothers movie. Oh, oh. Denzel Davis. Yeah. Which I haven't seen, but that's one of my most anticipated movies for us. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I feel like the only three films... Well, the, only, the only really two movies that, that this year might actually shake up my list would probably be that or possibly Alexander Payne's Nebraska, which I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to seeing. Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. American also- Hustle, too. American Hustle, oh. yeah. American Hustle, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, Wolf on I'm, Wall Street. I'm not too sure, but I'm... I'm oh, Wolf, Wolf on Wall Street. That, oh, yeah. That That's might... If it is released in this year. Supposedly it is. Christmas. Yeah. Oh, it is? They, they, pushed it, they pushed it back from the weekend Thor came out, where it was originally supposed to come out, to Christmas. So it's for sure coming out. They actually finished it. Unlike oh, okay. uh, the... The uh, George Clooney movie. Yeah, oh, so like the George Clooney that. movie and Foxcatcher, which both have been pushed back. Oh yeah. Um, Wolf on, Wolf right, on Wall yes. Street will be out this year. I'm yeah. also anticipating her, of course, but I've mentioned. I'm, that's my oh, that one. That's the third one. Yeah, that's the third one yeah. that would probably shake on my list. We really got to move on. We spend a lot of time on Twelve Years a Slave. Ooh, the next one is All Is Lost, which I'm so excited to talk about because we have two teams this time. <laughs> we have Team Right <laughs> and Team <laughs> Panty Spateri. <laughs> Oh my gosh. This is what I happens mean, when you're a guest on the podcast. Okay. We put you on display. Just wait until yeah. we get to Dallas Buyers Club. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, that's going to be interesting. Okay. Oh. <laughs> since, I'm, since I'm usually horrible at explaining plots of movies, but this movie actually has a fairly easy plot to, dis- to, to explain, I like to explain the plot for All is Lost. Robert Redford's okay. on a boat. Uh, but but seriously though, Robert Redford is a man that we get almost no backstory for. In fact, really in the grand scheme of things, no backstory for. We just know he's on. We just know he's our on a, man. He's uh, our man. That's right. He's our man. We just know he's on a yacht in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and he's sleeping, and he wakes up to find that his boat has been fractured by a crate carrying a bunch of sneakers. We don't know where they, where it came from. But it's just there. Basically, he tries to repair his boat, but then a series of storms make him basically screwed throughout the film. Now, there's your plot. That's all you get. You get his struggle to survive and his failure to do so. Now, what I love about this movie is, as detached as 12 Years a Slave is, I feel like this movie possibly focuses more on the danger surrounding our man than our man himself. And that's actually something that I really liked. There, there are several shots of the broad landscape of the ocean with just a tiny little boat right in the middle. And it gives, it, it, it gives the world around him a kind of menace that I really, really enjoyed. I love how this movie is infinitely interpretable because it does strip back a lot of those backstory elements a lot of those i mean even dialogue like other than yeah. um Fuck! 
Like, a, oh, like don't give it, don't give it away. Oh, is that a spoiler? I, I, didn't, I didn't know that was considered a spoiler. I almost like like like, like I knew. Okay, I knew that he would be shouting. Uh, everyone said shouting a four-letter word. Okay, he, he shouts fuck. He's not going to shout shit. <laughs> <laughs> fuck is much more satisfying, I agree. Fuck is much more um, satisfying. And the way he does it, I, I almost thought he would just be like, fuck, or something. But the way he yeah. does it is so cathartic and so great. It's like the, it's it's like the lost moment. Yeah, it's the one cathartic moment in an otherwise just... Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to call this movie brutal. I mean, oh, but yeah. it, it almost kind of is because the thing is, it's the kind of disaster movie that doesn't act like it's a disaster movie yeah. because it's very. He, he, here's, here's the thing: the main character handles everything very calmly and very collectively, and does not visibly show panic or fear or anything until, of course, everything is lost. And then that one moment just shows the collapse of him. And from that point on, it's it's this almost liberating sense of oncoming death and no hope. I love this movie. I, I truly, truly love this movie. I'm a big fan as well. And I think a lot of it is back to that those impossible interpretations. And the fact that I really did care about our man, Robert Redford's uh, plight, even though I don't know anything about him, other than the fact that he's probably wealthy. Yeah, this is one of two movies uh, today um, that we're going to talk about that I think can be really looked at under like kind of an existential like lens in that our man is the other, defined the other, one, by... the other one being the Hunger Games, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're hungry, so they exist to eat. Yeah, no, um, no but uh, <laughs> but but he is defined by what he does as opposed to what he thinks which goes in line with existentialism. I'm sorry if I'm butchering Nietzsche or anything. But I think that's really interesting by how we can follow a character based merely on what he does. And it really emphasizes that, really emphasizes the little things he has to do to survive. And watching a 70-year-old man climb the freaking, um, uh, what do you call it, mast? Oh, God, that was fucking vertigo, man. Yeah, no, it really was. And the cinematography in this movie is fantastic and kind of also emphasizes that. Also, the film gets becomes more poetic as it goes. It starts very little, yeah. and all the shots are like that. But as we go, we get those sense of vertigo. And I'm not going to spoil the end of this movie because that would be just stupid. But I will say the circle of fire, whichever that may be, was very distinct in my and is is an image that will stick with me for the rest of the year at least. Like, yeah, it, I know you you both know what I'm talking about. But but yeah, like yeah. the sort of poetry to that. Another interpretation... And, and, and there are almost spiritual connotations you can put with this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, exactly. Um, once again, my grandparents. I saw this movie with my grandparents. I've actually seen this movie twice. I went alone, and then my grandparents really wanted to see it because, you know, they're old and they like Robert Redford. Um, mm -hmm. And they really liked it, but, they, you know, they, they because they're a little more religious than I am, they found a lot of spiritual connotations with that ending, which I actually think are very valid to yeah. find with that kind of thing. I think the other big interpretation that um, Chris Tapley from HitFix, uh, the website HitFix, uh, I saw him tweet about this, I found it interesting, was that the movie can very easily be viewed as sort of an allegory for uh, financial collapse. Because I heard that, I was kind of looking for it. And actually, after I saw the movie, I, w I was on board with that interpretation, though I prefer the more existential look at it. And that's yeah, where I got my I think as minimal as this movie is, there, I think there's a lot, a lot of ways to take it. Like, yeah. like, like even the shoes at the beginning, or that's that that's that that breaks the hole into his uh, sailing boat. 
I mean, that's capitalism right there. <laughs> Making these holes that you have to keep patching and then these like washes of crisis keep washing over him until, you know, until he pretty much just has to accept the fate before he's allowed to get over it, accept the problem before he's allowed to, if he ever does find, because the ending is quite ambiguous, um, salvation. Now, you wouldn't know it just by listening to us, but all three of us have seen this movie. <laughs> Sorry, I wanted to let you guys get out your yeah. praise of the source, you know. Yeah, um, get out our, get out our, our yeah. fanboy... <laughs> our, our fanboy uh, love. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did like it. And I, I even agree with like what you guys are saying. I just think, you know, I felt like I had to strain to see these interpretations. Like, mm. you know, I, I, I considered both of those. And, and I just felt like comparing it to like a film like Gravity. Like, I don't want to compare them too heavily because they are different movies, etc. But yeah. the thing is, Gravity takes a similar premise, right? Like, basically focuses on one character, you know, trapped, fighting against the laws of nature, you know, just a survival tale. And I felt like Gravity, although I actually had a similar issue with Gravity, but to a smaller extent, I felt like the themes of, or what I was wanting more, and, and Gravity had enough symbolism, um, especially, you know, as it coincided with the whole um, grieving process thing, that kept me engaged. Um, I just felt like all is lost, um, you know, sure, you could you could argue for the existential crisis, you could argue for the economic approach, but I just felt like they were very thin, and I I didn't find that much to think about with them. I did like it though. I, I thought there was a lot to praise. Like Robert Redford was fantastic, and I think everyone just, has to give him credit. Yeah, everyone yeah. Has, absolutely. And and you know the the minimal nature was was refreshing. Like it was it was a well told, like well directed survival tale that. You know, even themes aside did keep me engaged. I did care about Redford's character. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's just, um, I don't know. I, I think I just I think I just wanted something a little more, you know, as far as the um, themes go, you know. And it's hard to even, like, argue about it because it's, yeah, you guys are both presenting, like, very legitimate uh, interpretations for it. And I'm, I'm trying to articulate exactly why it didn't feel like enough for me. I think it, it makes just, sense. I think it's a legitimate yeah. criticism. I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. Though. I'd recommend seeing it. I actually have been recommending it regardless of my opinion because I do think it's worth seeing. And, you know, uh -huh. I just I liked it. I just wasn't in love with it. You know, I just I just yeah. wanted a little more as far as that fleshing out that whole the you know potential metaphors or potential you know just things like that. That's what I just wanted more of. You know, what did what did you both think of uh, J C Chandler's first movie? Uh, I actually never seen it. I haven't seen it either. It, yeah, this is my first. I know it's like the polar opposite of this as far as just having a shit ton of, you know, talking. <laughs> Here is, okay, you just brought that up and it made me think of, this probably doesn't work at all, so feel free to attack me on Twitter, people. Uh, margin Call is to All is Lost as uh, Shane Carruth's first movie is to... Oh, uh, Primer. Primer, thank you. Primer is to Upstream Color. Interesting. In a way. Interesting, um, yeah. Which I think margin call is one reason why people like Chris Tapley and even myself to a certain extent really look, see the, uh, the the economic allegory in here just because margin call is literally about economic <laughs> the collapse. collapse. Yeah, exactly. Like it, that's a literal movie. While this is existential, uh, minimalist, uh, whatever you want to call it. I have a feeling I might like this more though. It, I I I, th I think Margin Call is actually a bit underrated, even though it was nominated for Zachary Quinto's and Chander's uh, screenplay. 
But I think that people are kind of lukewarm on that movie. I like it more than a lot of people I've seen. However, I also like All is Lost more than that movie. So kind of like I like it's like Primer. I like Primer. I love Upstream Color. I'm probably forcing that. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting though. I, I I've seen Primer and I still haven't seen Upstream Color, but I I, it, I it is, actually it is I've been I've I've been hollering at you all year to see Upstream Color. What the <laughs> you know I started watching it and I I was with a group of people and we couldn't finish it and so I'm at the point where I might just go at it by myself. You know, I, I, I almost feel it. like it's almost even better to well for me for for a film like that it's almost better to look at it by yourself just because i don't know i i don't want to have to deal with the pressure of what other people's like uh, fuck how do i say it like i don't want to have exactly what you're saying uh, yeah yeah it's it's almost the feeling when you're like showing someone music you like or something you know the worst feeling in the world like hey let's watch i I showed people eight and a half recently and i was like wait this is a terrible idea (laughs) i love how if i love how if you try to get a friend to watch a film that's actually challenging actually makes mm-hmm. you think, actually doesn't hand you everything at first, and then immediately immediately they come back into come back to you and they're just like, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a group of friends though that, that I watched some David Lynch movies with, with recently and I watched The Master with them and they like are totally on board. So so it's not always a bad feeling. Otherwise <laughs> Alright, so um yeah. We're not in agreement with all is lost, but well, well, we we all at least at least like it. Um, yeah, um, you know, I I'm sorry, you guys, I like it. No, 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 no you're, you're forgiven. Yeah, no, it's fine. You can you can go ahead and be wrong. You know, it's all good. <laughs> Just wait okay. till you get to Dallas Buyers. Uh, well, you know, I I wrote down a few other movies before, but since I know since the Dallas Buyers Club is the last movie that we've all seen because no, the other there's a. The other ones are just combinations. I've oh wait, you that's right. TJ hasn't seen Active Killing. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You guys can talk after Active Killing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just talk about Dallas Buyers Club now. Okay, okay. that's great. And uh, this movie is science fiction, everyone. Wait, let's have Danny introduce it. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. okay. All right. All right. <laughs> so it's about um, the straight homophobic <laughs> man um, played beautifully by matthew mcconaughey uh who has aids or who finds out he has aids and basically the movie depicts his like ongoing struggle against the pharmaceutical industry and hospital he frequents uh, in order to get proper treatment for it um because they're trying to push uh, a drug on him that is fda approved and it's AZT. basically yeah AZT. It's basically it's, poison yeah and it and it's gonna benefit you know of course the pharmaceutical company financially but not the patient and what he's trying to do is um push these methods that you know i don't know drugs or whatever that um uh will obviously not cure aids but they will make the quality of life a lot better prolong life etc they're what the azt should be doing um and they're you know they're unapproved by the fda so he has to get them in yeah they're unapproved by the fda sorry i forgot yeah exactly he has to go to quite great lengths to get them in in the meantime you know he's homophobic obviously but he of course he has to interact with plenty of gay people so you know you, you see his friendship especially blossom with jared leto's character who plays a transgender individual and um, that you know it's it's essentially um two arcs we get to see and it's basically a you know mcconaughey's tolerance increasing as um 
the story progresses and it's a it's a pretty it's two basic arcs really that one's one that we've seen before where we have the you know kind of curmudgeon hateful person who becomes you know more tolerant at the end because he's had like you know interaction with these people who have like shown him like you know etc but um then there of course is the whole person trying to accomplish something significant against the strength of the bureaucracy and those are both kind of played out like they're yeah it's relatively interesting but like i'm not going to pretend they're novel so yes i'm not calling this I, i'm on i guess the pro team for this movie even though <laughs> I say right now i don't think it's perfect you know i wasn't even like totally in love with it but i did really like it i i did think it was really good and one thing that made it good for me is my concern going into it was like okay we have this arc of this homophobic man who basically becomes like not homophobic I was worried that they were going to use the gay characters, especially like Jared Leto's character, as like the speechifying like homosexual. It's just like you know, you know, you just shouldn't hate gay people. And then you know, McConaughey would be like, you know what, you're right. And then you know, it would work out. <laughs> but like they they fleshed out, I think particularly Jared Leto's character quite well. They they spent enough time with him that he wasn't just a caricature. He seemed perhaps like a little stereotypical at points, but they definitely like, I think gave him enough detail and enough substance to make him overall believable um, like, I, I totally agree with you about jared leto uh yeah because i think at first i was a little put off yeah like, i actually I was, was like, too. Oh. I was like uh-oh <laughs> this yeah, is gonna yeah. be bad but as the movie goes on like he is actually he is a fleshed out character and it's the second best part of the movie yeah. after bradford cox <laughs> <laughs> sorry I, I, I was actually planning on doing a bunch of deer hunter uh puns but i think i'm gonna, I'm gonna not do that <laughs> I, I, I think that's good enough <laughs> it's okay. But <laughs> I love Deer Hunter. Um go listen to them people. Yeah. But um I have to but yeah, listen but... to like their three major albums after I watched that movie cuz like, you know, was, what when else am I going to see Bradford Cox like uh, opposite Jared Leto like in a in a relationship, you know? No, no, it's true. I I was going to listen to the the Deer Hunter records right after two, but nothing ever happened, so it didn't. <laughs> oh, uh, sorry. It's <laughs> the, uh, the the puns never stop. Um. <laughs> oh, okay. Um. All, right. All right. Look, here's the thing. Let me preface this by saying yes, I know that Dallas Buyers Club is a real story, and that Ron Woodruff was a real man. And yes, I also know that even straight straight homophobes can get AIDS too. And and you know, for all I know, maybe this movie does stay close to history. But the thing is, this this movie totally smacks of Hollywood wanting to make a legitimate true story about people with AIDS fighting for what, fighting for the drugs that they needed, which is a real struggle that happened in the eighties and even in the nineties. And it's something that people are still having trouble with today, but they didn't want to make it about gay people. They wanted that. They wanted to give us the, the comfortable straight conduit into that world where, yeah, the, the gay people aren't just magical homos, but at the same time, I, I, I can't help but I can't help but think, yeah, this would be a nice story if if the more notable stories in this in this struggle were told. But like I, I, the whole time, I'm just thinking, okay, where's the ACT UP biopic? Where's the Larry Kramer biopic? What what about the people that actually started buyers clubs in New York, which? thankfully, are actually mentioned in this film. I mean, I'll, I'll give you credit that it's not acting like Dallas was the place that buyer's clubs were originated, but I'm just, I mean, I, I'm just kind of tearing my hair out wondering why is this the film that we're getting right now? 
I mean, I, 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 only, I only hope that one day we get to a point where we can actually tell the the story of people that made the big the the people that made the big changes. Which, hey, hey, sorry to sorry to blow everyone's mind here, but they were gay. I, I just I want that story to be told. And they they did last year though. With no, that no, fantastic, no, 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 that no, fantastic I'm, documentary. I was nominated for an Academy Award. No, 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 no. Those those people's stories have been told, but not in the same, not in the same big budgeted, big studio kind of way that this film is. As a drama. Yeah, yeah, as a drama. I, and maybe this wouldn't be such a big deal, or maybe I could look over this a little bit if the movie if I thought the movie was better. But I don't think the movie is all that great. I find it okay. I'll I'll give Matthew McConaughey credit and the writers credit where. They don't turn Ron Woodruff into a saint. He's still kind he's, of prejudiced by the end of the film. No, he's, yeah, he's that's true. No, yeah. he starts out as a huge asshole, and he only ends up kind of less of an asshole. I mean, his yeah. mo his, his his motivation throughout a lot of the film is still money. Yeah, um, well, and, yeah. and, and also he reminds me of those people that you meet that they're, that they're racist, and maybe I have this more where I live because I live in you know the Midwest, where you have racist people who have a couple black friends just because they're the quote okay ones. <laughs> Have you ever met someone like that? Yes, I've definitely met people. Like, I'm usually the okay one to people. <laughs> oh, no. <I> don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but like, it's similar because she cares about Rayon. And, oh, by the way, I am not a homophobic person with a terrible mustache like the TJ in this movie. <laughs> Wait, there was a TJ in this movie? Yeah, his friend. That's um, right. Well, it was the, the But the you know what? The TJ guy, in the movie right? did have a threesome, so. Yeah. <laughs> I think, if I'm not mistaken, that was the the like second in command Nazi from Breaking Bad. Oh, was oh my I god! I swear he was from. He looks so familiar. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you're gonna play white trash character three in <laughs> PJ. Yeah. Oh man, we live in a weird era. <laughs> and the and the, th- the thing is, Rayon for a good while, they do give her an actual. Or, or, yeah, her. They gave her yeah. an actual character, and and I thought Jared Leto was perhaps. Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, this kind of performance is almost inherently gimmicky. I mean, let's let's just keep it real here. But he gives he gives her some good he gives her some good humanity, and it was a character that I was always I was always happy to watch. But I oh, yeah. feel like as as the as the film goes on, and I, I'm not gonna say what, but there is a tragedy that befalls. Yeah. The characters, and at that point, oh, it, she she just became a martyr. It became it became a magical homo thing. Where then, <clears throat> well, it's not like a magical negro; it's a magical homo. Oh yeah, I know. At this point, um, where then, Matt McConaughey has to has to look at himself, and uh, I, I, I felt like that. Oh, that felt so forced to me, and that might have been history too, but I. I <coughs> I, I feel like that was a bigger uh, revelation for the Jennifer Gardner character, who, by the way, in this movie is yeah. really not good. Yeah. Um, her <laughs> character is also her character doesn't need to be there. It's very yes. inessential. I will I will agree with that criticism. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty much in agreement with with um, with Danny on this movie, where I, I thought it was a solid drama, um, but there are some big flaws, and I think the biggest one might be her, because really, in my opinion, what Robbie's saying about how this is through the point of view of a straight person. It doesn't bother me that we're telling Ron Woodruff's character because I find him, one, I find him interesting. 
even stripping away all their context because he's so charismatic and he's such a terrible person at the same time. But but then he like develops into like even though he's still motivated by money, greed, his own life, he there are at least complexities within his character, which I think all credit belongs to a great performance by McConaughey. We are living the McConaissance. He's not oh, he's man. not sleepwalking through this performance. Um, but he the Jennifer Carter one she's a bad actress. Uh, at, at, <laughs> yeah. If that's mean, yeah. I'm sorry. But no, she I is. I, 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 I kind of like her in Juno, but okay, you're right. Uh, that that's easily her best role, uh, followed by Electra. Um, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 but but she, it, I think that's on the writers and on her because the character itself is so pointless. That'd be a hard character to play. Okay, you're gonna be this straight girl who falls kind of for the idea of Ron Woodruff, and you know you're a good person. So you so you're like supportive of the gay community because you're a good person. Like there's other than the fact that you have to stand up for yourself, there's really no complexity to your character. I feel like this movie yeah. felt the need to put in all the ingredients for a movie for yeah. like a fall prestige picture. I'm trying to avoid Oscar bait, but mm-hmm. uh, I feel like they had to put in all those ingredients and they had to make this kind of movie, which to me really boiled down to lifetime movie. As far as cinematic uh, weight goes, I will say there are some great cinematic uh, small parts of the movie. One of which is when um, with, with, where Ron's praying, and then the camera pans out, and he's in a strip club. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I think that in of itself is a very cinematic move, where like it it, it could only really work as a as a film. And I think yeah. there are enough moments of that. But really, it's the performances that make this movie a decent movie to me. Worth like, watching. Yes, uh, like yeah. totally worth watching. Because I mean, I really mean it. I think McConaughey is becoming one of the best Hollywood actors we have. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Like it's 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 insane. Like his movies are becoming like moments. Oh, a new yeah. McConaughey's movie coming out. I have to go see it just because he's in it. That's the only yeah. reason I saw this movie because McConaughey's, and not because I don't care about. The, you know, the AIDS movement um, or, the, you know, the, the, to get the, the drugs to the people who need it. Because I do. So How to Survive a Plague is one of my favorite documentaries I've ever seen. It's incredibly powerful and it really educates better than this movie. It's much better than this movie. But I still yeah. think this movie is a decent movie. At worst, uh, a kind of OK movie to me. But it's totally made by by Jared Leto, who gives a good performance. And McConaughey gives a great one. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree. You know, it it, it had it, it definitely. It seemed like Robbie like was almost like offended by it, and I, I wasn't. Quite uh, there. I was I wasn't offended by it. I just I, I just found it very middling. Like sort of as it went along, it pissed me off a little bit, but I've really kind of gotten over it. Honestly, okay. it, it it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it's it's worth getting mad at because it's not horrifically bad enough to, to me to get mad at. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I just found it to be kind of middling and yeah you you can see this movie for matthew mcconaughey and you know even for jared little if you want to but i i don't think you should i don't think you need to see it in the theater i feel like you can wait for it to be on netflix or redbox or something i mean do i think am i gonna say hey spend 10 to 12 dollars to see it in the theater no i'm not no i'm not gonna say that yeah it's not necessarily a, an essential theater experience i i just think it's i think it's worth saying i wouldn't write it off you know especially right. for mcconaughey yeah mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, I, I can't stress enough. Uh, watch How Survivor Plague. Uh, there, there's another AIDS documentary called We Were Here that I've heard is really good. Just, when you see that. Like, uh, if, if you want to see this movie, great, but please do your research and know the people that 
you know, made the most change and weren't needle in the haystack white homophobe that uh, managed, managed to come up. And, he, and Ron Woodruff did a great thing for Dallas. I'm not trying to say that he was bad, but, you know, spoiler alert, the Dallas Buyers Club kind of failed. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I didn't make that much of an impact on the, on the grand scheme of things, things, but I digress. Let's move on. Well, I, I will say that I, want to. <laughs> that I hope this movie does spark a revival for people seeing some of these movies from last year, you know. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, I, I should go back and watch How to Survive a Play because I, I, I feel like I'll like it better too, even though I, I still, you know, casually endorse this film. Right. I will say that, that I totally did sneak about five or six Deer Hunter titles into everything. Yeah, you said, did. So. Yeah, you, yeah, <laughs> so, you, so go check that out, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, you okay. definitely definitely did. Um, okay. Uh, blue is the warmest color. Uh, TJ, why don't you explain this one? It's good. Uh, okay blue is the warmest color is the more controversial of the two movies that deal at least in part with um with the gay Gay people with gay people yes blue is warmest color i love 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 this movie it's a three-hour coming of age um in part lesbian love story that also in my opinion works as an existential film the movie is so artistically shot with these wonderful claustrophobic even close-ups where we get to really get to know this um adele character played um, possibly my favorite female performance at least top three top two even by adele exarchopoulos and i nailed that that name by the way nice getting better <laughs> also directed by abdelatif kashish nailed that name too i've been what practicing the hell <laughs> yeah his name's abdelatif kashish I, I know how to pronounce Leia do, but I don't know. I, I couldn't figure out any of the fucking other one, other ones. No, I, I've been going on podcasts and listening to how other people pronounce it and been practicing in the mirror. So. Sweet, sweet. Because I don't want to butcher any more foreign names because I'm tired of being that American who can't say Adele Exarchopoulos. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but, it, but, but seriously, Adele Exarchopoulos is great in this movie. She, um, she grows, like, I've never seen such wonderful aging done with no makeup in a movie before. She goes from the naive teenager with spaghetti on her face to a woman dealing with the pains of early adulthood and that sort of crisis that happens when you get to a certain age and you don't know what you want in the world anymore. She, all these close-ups, we get to see her existing, which goes to my the, the existential crisis thing, or maybe not even crisis, just a movie about being, about existing, about these relationships, yeah. and not really about what she's thinking or what, just about what she does. The sex scenes, which are the, or, or the point of controversy for this film, are entirely, like, entirely necessary. They are sloppy and loud, and I mean, I, I have I have some uh, some gay friends who are kind of offended by the scenes, but but they've only seen them out of context because there's this video that um, that someone released, and I was, I was watching it. I was like, hey, wait, I know that person. Yeah, it's one of my friends. It was weird because she moved to New York recently. And, and they did this video where these lesbians just watch the sex scenes with no context and see how realistic they are. And, but the issue is that, that they're completely taken out of context. So. Yeah. And in context, they are, they're loud, <laughs> sloppy. When, when the people are cry, uh, whenever Adele's crying, we get to see the snot drip down her nose. We get to see the way her body works. There are many nude scenes which are not done with the sort of uh, where the controversy lies, the male gaze kind of sexist look at the female figure and uh, the romanticism of lesbian uh, sex. 
the film avoids that by giving us these scenes where we get to see Adele cry and it's gross and messy. And we get to see her just live in this world and go through all these different experiences that young people go through gay or straight. And for her, arguably bisexual, I would probably say that yeah, we had to put her on the, on the stuff, scales. There's stuff involving guys. So it, it, it could easily be said. Um, yeah. The the thing is with the sex scenes, I, I feel weird about going on going on to this first before I talk about the rest of the movie. But the set the sex <coughs> fuck sorry the sex okay. scenes. I mean especially the centerpiece sex scene which everyone's talking about, which uh, I've heard described as like lasting twelve minutes. Uh, no, that lasts, is exaggerated. It, it lasts like six or seven minutes at, at most. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, although it's long as compared to a lot of sex scenes that we get in American films, but the the thing is, those scenes it stops being sex, it starts being fucking, mm-hmm. and 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 I I truly mean that in like the the best possible way, and it's not pornographic either. Porn porn is for the camera. The, the these scenes are not for the camera; they are for the actors, and and I. I, I mean, the sex in this film is primal in a way that you don't see in a lot of American films, and I think that's what's leading to a lot of the controversy. They did feel very germane to the story because because this film it feels like life unfolding in a way that I just do not see in in many movies at all. I, I can name you maybe one or two, not even maybe one other film this year that felt just like I'm watching life happen. Yep. Before midnight. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah. I, oh, well, I was thinking Francis Ha, considering that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, that makes sense too. I would agree. With <clears throat> but just the scope of this film. I mean, this is a three-hour film, and every second of it felt totally germane. And the second... film totally feels like a two-hour movie. It doesn't feel three hours long. Yeah, and and it, it really feels like you're watching just this this section of someone's life as it would actually. B, you know, there, there's a lifelike rhythm to this film that I, I feel like is totally consistent, and it, it it justifies the length, honestly. Oh, absolutely. And as far as other romance films, it's just very natural and honest, and <clears throat> I, I felt like every emotional beat involving this this main character, Adele, is so relatable and so true, and you you feel like you embody her and you and you love her. By the end, of the, not even by the end of the film. By the start of the film, and you want, and by the end of the film, you want her to be well, and you want her to succeed. I mean, I thought that this was just such a kind and and delicate movie, and it loves its characters dearly, dearly, and it loves its main character so dearly, and it makes you love her as well. Spielberg, Ang Lee, and uh, and uh, Nicole Kidman picked well as the can jury this year for the Palm Door. And giving it not only to Kashish, giving it to the actor, giving it to the yeah, give it to Exarchopoulos and Seydu. All three shared the the award, and it's deserved because Leah Seydoux is great. Uh, she's a co lead. It's a co lead performance, even though this is not her story. It's it's Adele's story. But Seydu, it should be mentioned, she does a great job of playing a completely different person. She's mu- even though she's not perfectly confident, she's much more confident than Adele, and kind of has her life more figured out, which I think in part makes Adele's character more interesting. But we need. That Leia Sedu sort of uh, foil, if you were, if you would, to what Adele is going through. Uh, Leia Sedu's character's name is Emma, yeah. but but yes, yeah, she would be the blue-haired co-lead of the film, and she does a great job in her own. Yeah, and uh, I, I I mean, 
maybe my favorite sequence of film, maybe my favorite scene out of any film this year, including like you know what are my sort of top favorites. This is one of this is up there. It's definitely up there. But maybe my favorite scene in the film uh, in, in, involves the two women, and there's been some turmoil tor- in their relationship, and they meet up at like this this bar restaurant place, and the scene goes on for like maybe ten or twelve minutes, and it's just riveting and i can't explain to you what it's about because you wouldn't get it because you know it's out, of, it's out of context it's really in the film but uh j- just that one scene floored me in a way that so so few full movies have been able to do this year and it's one scene out of a three-hour film and it and that would be another way that i go back to to the existential because they're merely just interacting and acting where not where they're not you're not worried about what everyone around them is thinking there's one glance from someone in a distance after Emma leaves, that that's the only thing you get from other people, because otherwise you have this sort of attempt to rekindle the relationship, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. Like, like there's a slurpy noise when she kisses her fingers, and, like, it, it kind of, I don't know, it just feels honest. It feels true. This is the opposite of what you were describing with Dallas Buyers Club, and that this movie feels authentically real, as opposed to Dallas Buyers Club, which, again, I like to a certain extent, is dramatic. And it works as a drama film, but this is m- much more than that, I would say. Yeah, um, and I mean, I can't stress, stress how stress how important every part of this film feels. But there's just this universality to this film that is unlike a lot of other movies this year, but definitely a, uh, unlike many other romance films I've seen all year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know the term coming of age story is a, like it almost seems like a little bit of a bad word at some point, but. I uh, I honestly feel like this film not only transcends that, but uh, like almost embraces that and gives it a new meaning because you mm-hmm. don't see. I feel like uh, in a lot of coming of age films, you see a point where the character grows up, mm-hmm. but you don't you don't see that in this film. You see this character growing up continuously throughout the film to the point where even when she's an adult and has a job. Uh, and a job that she wanted to have, you still see that process and you still see that almost immaturity and even by the end of the film you know you, you see the character has made progress but there's still progress to be made with that character so you don't there isn't a finite point where okay this is where i'm an adult this is where i've grown up oh yeah and in the end of the movie is beautifully ambiguous totally different by the way from the comic which i read the synapses for and it's i from what yeah. i'm not doing the comic justice but based on what i read in the synopsis i prefer this ending but i would need to read Possibly. the actual graphic the actual graphic novel to see yeah. how it's i know, it's I know exactly on. what i know exactly what you're talking about you are okay yeah the, yeah they definitely definitely took took um uh liberties with with the film and you know what and, and unless that graphic novel is great i usually don't like endings like that so but i do want to read it so you know. yeah so um, we're, we're we're both in agreement here. Blue is the warmest yes. color. Is so fantastic. Top five um, film of the year so far. <laughs> okay, I, I, I plan I, on seeing it for sure. I just gotta wait till it uh, is online somewhere. It, it'll be released on the Criterion Collection in February before the Oscars. Okay, great. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to catch it before. And, then. and actually, they're releasing a stripped down version that's only going to be twenty bucks as opposed to their normal thirty to forty dollar. Uh, editions of films but yeah they, they're releasing a stripped down version they're going to release a special edition later that will be full price expensive criterion but they they want to get the movie out there 
Probably because they're, they're I mean, I want, I do wonder, I know awards don't matter other than to give films exposure, but I wonder if this could be this year's a more and surprise people at like, you know, the freaking Oscars. Uh, well, it's, really well cool. it wasn't, it wasn't, France didn't choose it to be. Oh, uh, oh it, there's, yeah, it, it is impossible for it to be nominated for foreign language picture, but I, I don't think that screenplay supporting actress and maybe if like people aren't as impressed by Streep or, or Judy Dench is as the pundits think they are, that maybe even actress, if enough people see the film. I, like, I wouldn't mind it at all because I think Exo Chopless deserves it wholeheartedly. All right. Uh, do you guys want to talk about Computer Chess next, considering you both saw it and I didn't? Um, we can. Do we? How are, how are we doing on time? How many more films should we talk about? Uh, we're at, at about an hour and 29, but there's quite a bit of discussion that in the beginning that we can cut. Yeah, yeah really, we're, we're about at an hour and nine. So. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay, there's Computer Chess... Um, Hunger Games. We can, yeah, but we can we can quickly do Hunger Games. Um, Act of Killing, and then you can quickly do Wajda. Yeah, it'll be quick. I'm, I'm not going to spend more than a couple minutes on it. Okay. I want to rest my voice, so how about you guys do computer chess? All okay. right, no problem. So would you well, like to introduce it, Danny? Because I think you've seen I, it. I suppose, but you're going to have to help me here because it's a difficult film to introduce. <laughs> um, it is. I know. I, I would yeah. totally agree with that. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 I guess, at its, you know, on the surface, it's about... A group of you know just um, I don't know what you'd call them exactly just people trying to program computers to play chess um, mm-hmm. and in order and it's just that it kind of um, recalls that craze I guess in probably the 80s when um, people were trying to you know get the computer to beat people at chess and mm-hmm. anyway it's you know there's not too much to say about the actual like surface level plot i think it's just what really makes it a unique film is just so many of the details just the way it's shot the way there are so many scenes which are so odd and the direction is so odd and so many and just a, a number of idiosyncrasies it's just hard to even know where to begin with them um but i don't know tj i'm curious to see what you kind of have to say about some of those um I, this is one of those movies that that sort of confounds me, even though I know I liked it. Like I've done a lot of reading about it because I I almost don't feel like I'm smart enough to really understand all the nuances. It kind of reminds me a bit of Holy Motors to a certain extent, but I feel like I had a better grasp uh-huh. on Holy Motors, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, but it's a movie where you get a lot of these interesting characters um, that are quite memorable. Um, they sort of I've seen someone phrase it where you get every spectrum of the autism scale in this movie ah! <laughs> that's actually a really good way to put it yeah we're like where all these people are really they're genius at what they do but they are struggling to make any reasonable human connections with each other which i mean that, that's sort of a stereotype because i'm actually reading this book now uh uh what is it called the reason i jump um that that's actually about autism so i, I don't want to like you know kind of label them that way but they do sort of struggle to make these sort of human connections and they don't really go with societal acceptable like um actions i've also seen the argument this film is sort of about the end of the end of film not like cinema is dead but sort of how like we're kind of transitioning into a computerized world where we're relying more and more computer computers to make our films but i think you could expand that from film to just life what Um, country is this film from it's it's American. it's American. Oh, it's American. Yeah. Hmm. For yeah. some reason, I thought it was foreign. For some reason. Mm. Yeah. Probably because you probably because you were comparing it to Holy Motors, but. Oh, totally. I mean, it to- it totally like has the vibe of more of a foreign film 
like an avant-garde even foreign film as opposed to sort of what we expect from independent American cinema. But it has yeah. it, it has really interesting takes on the sort of relationships to technology and sort of the way that in during the course of the film, the technology is becoming smarter and smarter and sort of like having conversations. Yeah. Like at that one point where, where the one character has conversation with the computer and he's asking the computer questions and the computer's giving these very cryptic answers. Yeah. And then it starts asking questions, like, which is, I thought, one of the most interesting. Or at the very end, when, like, those two people go out to his mother's house to get money, I believe. That was then, one like, of my favorite scenes, yes. Oh, it was great. And then everything goes color. Like, it, yeah, like, that was absolutely, oh, man, yeah. Is the film in black and white? Yes, yes it is. Oh, all right. And uh, if anyone here has seen No, which is a great film, and I recommend it. That's actually um, on my queue. I just uh, I just uh, got it, so. It, um... It, both are shot on video to sort of make it feel like an 80s film, like as opposed to on film or digital, so that they're shot on actual video, and then they, they look like TV movies from the 80s, huh. like, or like, or like news even, like, which totally adds to the idea that this could be construed as a film about, you know, older technologies and how imperfect they are, but how, like, as we go on, technology becomes more perfect and eventually, in ways, almost makes us obsolete. I don't know. It, it, it's a it's a difficult film. I totally recommend it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think um, there are two uh, two scenes that come to mind immediately that I think were the clearest and what the film was maybe trying to say. Um, uh, and you know, I don't think there's really any way to spoil a movie like this, so I'll explain it in somewhat clear detail. Um, mm-hmm. The scene that you were talking about, where they go to there's two characters. There's that one character in particular. Um, Papa George, who uh, oh, yes. is, uh, yeah, he's the whole time, whole movie, he is like, I guess in a way we could talk about the third, like, almost existential crisis in, in, in a way because he's constantly throughout the movie looking for a place to stay. And it's like he's <laughs> trying to find, it's like, a, it's a comedic element of the movie. And yet it also, like, really emphasizes his, uh, his like, identity and his, like, search for identity um he's the basically the the rogue um, programmer who's not on a team and there's a scene that we were talking about where he and another character go to that character's mother's house uh, go to papa george's mother's house uh, or, or aunt or something i think it's it doesn't matter but basically they go to get money or something and it's a very strange scene where the mother or whomever is telling a story about an uncle who was looking who had a jar of money and had like hit it somewhere and then uh like couldn't find it but then like eventually people found it but he was dead or something i, I forgot exactly how it went but as yeah. she's telling that story uh he's looking for the money and he's just like where's my jar of money you know over and over again and this is when it turns to color and it, and you get shots that i think are actually like identical i think it just shoots him like walking around looking for this money um in a very repetitive way as she tells the story and as he repeats that same phrase. And uh, and uh, then the way that scene ends is there's a, another character, there's a voiceover of him going, lost in a loop, and then it just transitions yeah. scene. <laughs> and, like, I thought that was, like, a really... It's a really powerful scene, like, within the context of the movie, and it really, like... It, it really emphasizes that character's arc, like, extremely well. Um, and it also ties to the uh, to the previous scene where, where the other where one of the teams their computer program's broken like there's something wrong with it and and that yeah. computer that computer program gets stuck in a loop 
So it's almost, it, yeah. I really think it's interesting what you said about existential crisis. And maybe I'm just trying to apply this to so many movies lately. I don't know why. I haven't thought about it since college. But <laughs> like how the computer itself is in an existential crisis, which kind of, again, goes to show how like advanced the technology gets eventually. Yeah. Because it's, it's, like, cho- it's like choosing to sabotage itself. Yeah. Like, it's making that choice. And that's kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, totally. And 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 the other scene I was going to mention was the, I think it might even be the, almost the last scene, um, where um, the, arguably the main character, if there even is one, um, is uh, I guess he like, what's after he had been, uh, try, I guess like I don't know, awkwardly like engaging in, <laughs> like you know I don't know like conversation or some with this with the one female. Who was at the the convention or whatever? And um, oh, yeah. And uh, is that after he was propositioned for a menage a trois? Yeah, that was. <laughs> yeah, and uh, <coughs> this is um, this whole arc of him with this this girl. It doesn't really, you know, develop into like a conventional romance, obviously. And uh, instead, after after you know the convention ends, we see him in his hotel room, basically having you know not exhibited the skills necessary to, to engage in a human relationship and instead he hires this you know i guess a prostitute and mm-hmm. right as this prostitute you know gets gets naked uh she gets on the bed and and somehow like it reveals behind her hair that there's like a computer like <laughs> um circuit board or something you know and mm-hmm. yeah that's and that was like weird. that was probably the most like obvious moment of symbolism in the whole movie like it's just mm-hmm. here's a character who you know is struggles to make human contact and you know here's his appeal to technology as his form of uh human communication human experience you know and then it's all the comparisons between like new age religion and yes yeah with, with the other group of people who are at the convention, which I, I believe includes those who propositioned our main, our uh, arguably main character for a yeah. three-way, but like, or that the, these new age people, and then they literally just interrupt and frustrate the techno, the technology after they, they have that bonus match that they do every year, where, <laughs> where, where, where the where the, the head or the MC of the uh, of the entire convention plays the best computer to prove that yeah. man can defeat technology. But then, yeah. really, he gets frustrated and throws it. <laughs> he just throws the board, and uh, yeah. which kind of shows, you know, the limitations of man. It's, it's a yeah. it's a bizarre movie, and it's really interesting. Interested yeah. in seeing it? Yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's yeah, I agree with TJ. It is confounding, and it's it's. I think you know, I, I would argue that the movie isn't even as coherent as it should be all the time. But it, it just does. It, it's so. It's so strange, and that's that's interesting, and it makes it unique, and it makes a compelling watch consistently. But you know, you do have to recognize, like it it could it it does seem like certain scenes, you know, they may have their point, but they're very uh, they're almost like window dressing at points. I'm not going to argue that any scene is completely pointless. Like I think it knows what it wants to say. I just think that it it doesn't always uh, say it as coherently as it could. Although I'm not going to suggest it should be any less like experimental than it is because that makes it extremely unique and, and compelling you know um i'd recommend it i would just say you know be prepared that it's not always gonna it's not always gonna be as like um easy to interpret 
as like maybe you'd like it to be. And I'm not even suggesting that like you would want a film that isn't challenging. It's just there's a difference between a film that's like sufficiently challenging and a film that's like challenging partially because it it lacks some coherence. You know. No, I totally um, agree with that. This, uh, yeah. Going back to previous conversation, this is not a movie that you'd show your friends if you think <laughs> they, don't like, <laughs> they don't like this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, right. that's true. But that's... it's still something I'd recommend to you, definitely. Oh, yeah. I, I think um, Robbie would dig it. Sure, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's – me and TJ, how about let's quickly talk about the Hunger Games, or as Sofia Vergara on SNL would say, Hunger Games! <laughs> I didn't see it. Was, was that this week's episode? No, that was actually like almost uh, like a year ago. It was like after oh, the, first, well, <laughs> the first movie came out. Well, like the Squareface who plays Peta, I don't know what his name is. I call him Squareface. Um, probably. Oh yeah, <laughs> that is yeah. Uh... Um, but 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 he was on this week. That's why I asked. Okay. Well. Um. Okay. Um, but uh, would you like to introduce I'll, it? Robert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll introduce it. So, Katniss and Peter, Katniss Everdeen and Peter Mullard won the Hunger Games. Last movie, and but by basically tricking the system by the use of some poisonous berries in a way that uh, you won't you won't understand unless you've seen the first movie. But now President Snow and the Capitol's mad, and they're gonna they're gonna show it by being being um, dictators and 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 eventually on the next Hunger Games choosing. The choosing the what the fuck are they called? Um, tributes through basically choosing them from previous winners, and wouldn't she know it? And the seventy fifth Hunger Games, Josh Hutcherson and Cadis Everdeen are back. I, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't just call Josh Hutcherson by his actual name or by his yeah. character, Peter Peter Malark. But this, maybe it's because one of the weaknesses of this series, and this goes back to the books, is that the names are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it's true. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So the names of Lord of the, Ling, the names in Lord of the Rings aren't ridiculous. No, they're totally ridiculous, but they have have some basis in actual like, you know, Germanic languages because uh, languages. Oh, and Harry, Harry Potter, I mean, Harry, Harry... Okay, no, the Harry Potter names are silly, and I like Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, well, okay, well... I mean, it's like, not I, like I nothing like else has silly names. And, like, okay, the thing is, the 75th, Hand- 75th Hunger Games are also called the Third Quarter Quell, and I've heard people say, that's a stupid name. Well, okay, Harry Potter has a dictionary of straight-up stupid names, all right, so... Oh, no, the, the, the Quarter Quell didn't bother me at all. I just think that, you know... Primrose Everdeen's kind of a silly name, and President Snow. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just think those are kind of silly. All right. Yeah. All right. Mr. Debbie Downer. <laughs> Robbie, I like this movie. Don't hurt me. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought this movie was great. I honestly, okay, I want to hear shit from anyone, but I read the books three years ago. And I think the well, books I are... I give you shit for that. Huh? Okay, well, I'm more talking to the audience. Hey, audience, oh. don't give me shit for it. I read Tweet the book. Tweet at Clyde Nut. Tweet at Clyde Nut. <laughs> <laughs> to insult give, Robbie. Give me shit things. and I'll give you twice that twice that amount of shit back. It's totally true, people. Don't do it. I read the. I read. It. Look, legit. <laughs> I read the books three years ago. I legitimately think they're great. Yes, they're YA. Yes, that yes, they're fanboys slash mostly girls kind of ruin it. But I don't care. Looking at them, 
subjectively for me, as just as the books, I think they're legit great as far as the pantheon of YA novels go, which I, which I, 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 I go from disliking to not really giving a shit about. Mostly not really giving a shit about because I really don't read that stuff very often. But Are you a Harry Potter fan? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, just making sure. So well, 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 Harry, well, Harry Potter was my time. Now I'm kind of well, yeah, it was that. my time too. No, totally. Yeah. Uh, uh, but any, but anyway, first movie I thought was mostly pretty successful in you know being a nice little adaptation. But I felt like this one does a much better job of, and this is why I do kind of love this movie. Actually, it it really gives a much fuller sense of the world and the atmosphere that this that these games and this government takes place in and you get the politics of the capital and the government more far more clearly than the first film uh donald sutherland as president snow has a much bigger presence in this film as in the first as he did in in the books obviously he had he has a much really good and he he is he is great he hasn't raised his voice once throughout the whole movie but uh, man, I, I think he's one of the best actors. I want to talk about the performances, and I think his is one of the best because it's very subtle. Absolutely, very well. absolutely. Totally, he's, so, totally he's, great. he's towering without, like I said, ever raising his voice. I agree. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. And and I honestly think that Jennifer Lawrence is pretty great too. I mean, I I think she's great, but my issue. I, it might be a screenplay issue, even though I think it's a good screenplay, because I totally agree. It expands on everything in the first. It actually makes me dislike the first one more, because this one's so solid. Like I kind of forgave the issues with the first one, but now that I've seen this, like, I, I see what the potential for that one could have been. But Well, I think um, they meant that potential. Oh, yeah. No, well, yeah, that's true. But the I feel like the screenplay does a disservice to Katniss in that she only has two emotions in this movie, it feels like. She's either all the way on or all the way off, where she's like yeah. trying to be stoic and like you know do that, or she's like incredibly emotional, like uh, I, I, which I understand I because she's in a highly sorry. Go oh, on. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because she's in a highly stressful situation. I totally understand that, but for some reason it felt like there wasn't a lot of dynamic to the performance or to the writing of the performance. Even though I'm a huge Jennifer Lawrence fan, she's so I good. Felt, I felt that with the first film, I do. Okay. I can't really give you any scenes to point to to prove my point, which mm-hmm. shows how great of a great how great of a debater I am. But I did notice some. I did notice. Some, You're a master debater, Robbie. Don't don't undermine it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did. I did feel like there was a middle ground that wasn't necessarily achieved in the first film. Um, okay. I I did find more spots in the pantheon of, you know, quiet and stoic to. Uh, because in the fi- in the in the first film it was kind of annoyingly so where yeah you, you know in the mm-hmm. book I I can't remember if the book is first person narrated or not but in the in the book in the first book rather you got you know just just with the way books are you got to see the inner workings of Katniss's mind in a way you don't you're not able to in a movie you know so in the, in the first film we really did feel like I think she's super quiet or she's yelling at Peta for doing something you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. In this film, I didn't feel like it was that one-sided or two-sided, rather. I mean, I think you're right. I, I think I'm underrating it a bit, which which is okay. Which you um, are. That's fine. I know. The, the performances as a whole, though, I liked because I think 
I might, I don't know if I'm in the minority of this or not. I find Elizabeth Banks and Stanley Tucci incredibly entertaining, even though they're totally oh, yeah. hamming it up. But their characters are phony and fake, and I and they in themselves are hamming up. And Elizabeth Banks has a really has nice a dramatic arc. scene. She yeah. has a character arc this time. Yeah. I, I barely even remember that character from the books. And the first film, yeah. I thought, you know, she's entertaining to look at. But in this movie, she has a character arc. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it makes, you know, it was touching. I liked it. And Stanley Tucci is so hilarious. He makes me laugh every time he says anything. He's, so, he's so funny. His teeth are so white. The I have to say the best actor in both movies is Woody Harrelson. His character. Yeah. I, I mean, he's, he's played mostly for comic relief. But his line reading of, well, shit. <laughs> was, <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't but, stop laughing. It was I didn't one. I didn't expect it because it's a it's a young adult novel, PG thirteen or no. But it was it was. I, I really enjoy Hamish as a character. I always want him on screen. Um, but the thing is, so, I think I think this film does a really great job of of showing how. Well, basically, in the, basically in the in the beginning of the film, the Candace and Peter are kind of going on an apology tour throughout all yeah. of the districts. Basically saying, "Hey, we won, but and we had to kill your, we had to, we had to kill your friends, but hey, sorry." And oh, I think, it, yeah, it, it is really messed up. I think this film does a really great job of showing how they basically <laughs> had to become celebrities to kind of pacify the people. Uh, and the, the, I, th- I thought the film did a great job of really conveying that idea. Uh, of course, the people aren't pacified. They, you know, hold up the three symbol, which I, I frankly, I forget what the, what the hell that even means. But yeah. I know Katniss did it, but I don't even remember what the, I don't even know what, what the hell holding up three fingers means anymore. I don't but, know. All I know is she does it whenever Rue dies in the first one. That's all I know. Yeah. But yeah, the apology tour. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. But yeah, I think this film really does a great job of explaining the politics of the of this world and why as winners they have to be celebrities now and how that that kind of apology tour of being celebrities never really ends you know for them although you know without being too spoilery it does sort of end in a way mm-hmm. um because the people are really riled up because of Katniss and instead of downplaying it they get to a point of this film where they're like nope let's actually heighten that up a little bit and piss off and piss off the districts even, or piss off the capital rather even more. I think it should be noted that some of the performance in this, some of the performances in this follow flat for me. Um, I, I think that Liam, um, Mr. Miley Cyrus, and um, Squareface are not that great. Um, they're not Charlie Hunnam I, bad, but I like Josh. I like Josh Hutcherson enough. Josh Hutcherson's better than than Liam Hemsworth, but I'll give I you still, that. but like. I don't think it's actually Josh Hutcherson's fault. I think that it's that some of the things that happen to him throughout the movies are so stupid. Um, like what? To me, uh, the first movie, painting himself to to match the scenery, it's <laughs> I, I can't forgive that for some reason. Like I, I ret- like I don't think it's fair to the movie even. I can't like I can't get over how stupid that is to me. I, I could be wrong, and I apologize for my. You probably are wrong. But um, but the 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 introduction of what I find is probably the best, the most interesting character in the series so far, Sam Chaplin's character Finnick, I found very interesting for some reason. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I did not know where his character was going, and I and I was aware of that. I was like, okay, 
is this guy going to be the new antagonist for this film? Like the big strong guy was in the first one. Is he going to be like her main obstacle in there? Is he going to be fleshed out? And then the way that Katniss like doesn't have faith in him and thinks that he would throw the, his old mentor, the old lady, under the bus. And then like how we actually get some emotional arc with this character, I found refreshing. And I hope he has... I don't know what happens. I hope he has a bigger role in the, in the upcoming movies because I found him inf- infinitely uh, more... Spoiler alert, he does. Okay, good. Because I find him infinitely more interesting than Peter or Gale. Also, also, he, also he's fucking adorable. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I got a little gay in me, and he, brought, he brought that gay. <laughs> no, it, it, was it the sugar cube, Robbie? <laughs> Man, I let him feed me a sugar cube any day. <laughs> <laughs> the um, uh, it's hilarious. The um, another performance I was underwhelmed with. The opposite of Sutherland was, I think that this performance was too understated to the point where it looked like it was phoning it in, is the incredibly talented Phil Hoffman. Phil Hoffman. Oh, um, no. I was hoping his would be great. Um, I, I almost, his character's underwritten at this point, because we don't know a lot okay. about him. Well, okay, as you see, at the end of this film, he will be a bigger player in the next film, which isn't really... It's not a good enough excuse, but I, I, I don't know. I almost felt... I almost felt like he was purposely underplaying it um, because um, he had uh, – it's really hard to get into, get into without spoilers, but I, I, uh, I understand what you're, what you're saying. But, yeah. I, but I don't know a lot of the, the aspects of, of what's coming. I, um, I think the screenplay was largely successful, but maybe it's because there's a lot of talent behind it with Michael Arndt, who it, all of his written movies are over 90% Rotten Tomatoes. And co-written by uh, Simon um, Bafoy, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who did like Slumdog, Full Monty, 127 Hours, a lot of a lot of British movies, obviously. But I found that that they did a pretty good job, sort of elevating some of the material because a lot of the traps, once we get to the actual action scenes, I find really uninteresting, like the Jabber Jays and how they can like make you go crazy, or the acid fog. Or the crazy baboons, which the special effects are vastly improved in this movie from the last one. <laughs> so much better. Those dogs in the first one were putrid looking. And the, ba- the baboons in this one are like farly are far superior looking. But I still find that a lot of it stretches, even though it's a science fiction story, a lot of it stretches believability even in the context of the world, even though everything all their obstacles are computer generated, and I get that. But for some reason, I, I'm just not interested in these purposefully contrived obstacles because they're being contrived by the game master, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. And the whole clock thing didn't work for me. The whole clock image, just I just didn't get it. I don't know. It was just too involved with the story, in my opinion. Well, you're perfectly fine and allowed to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> See the Hunger Games. It's great. I, I say it's the best not 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 only blockbuster because that, because that's an ambiguous sort term, sort of like that, event movie sort of thing because I consider Gravity a blockbuster I think that's the best blockbuster I don't know I almost don't even consider Gravity a blockbuster just cause, just because it made a lot of money I mean it feels yeah it felt more like an art film to me kind of okay strangely all right no no th- then therefore I think this is the best blockbuster franchise movie that's what I was thinking yeah, it's a big, yeah okay is, that's a good point this is like. Slightly better than Iron Man 3 for me, which I also enjoyed, and um, I would say it's the best franchise movie of the year. People are saying that, and they're right. Yeah. I like this more than Iron Man 3. I like it more than the new Thor. I like it more than Man of Steel, 
<laughs> and um, I'd, I'd probably say, like, I felt more of a collective heft from this movie. Probably more than any other, any other um, um, franchise movie probably since The Avengers. I, I would say Avengers and Dark Knight Rises, but I like Dark Knight Rises more than most, I think. Well, more than more than me, anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, before we move on, um, I, I do plan on seeing it very soon, actually. I just want to say, you know, I'm going to have my, res- my reservations because I, I do have issues with the first one. Um, yeah, it's not perfect. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just... Yes, it's a step above most YA adaptations, like... But, you know, and I, I need to rewatch at least some of it to kind of refresh on how I feel. So this might be an undercooked opinion, but uh, I can tell you right now, like, there, there's so many just just elements of, like, a YA adaptation of a blockbuster, etc., that I feel like they need, they feel need to be present and, I guess, do in order to, to be that wide appealing. But some of them and, just, just, just sacrifice so much integrity. And, and, and like, one example is uh, in the first film how... Uh, when uh, Katniss and uh, Peta engage in like the romance, basically it's a fake romance in order to uh, sway, you know, the audience or like sway like the audience in the, in the film in order to win, you know, win the uh, affections, you know. And I, I feel like that right there is like a good comment on the nature of like celebrity and on the nature of how people are so obsessed with the romances of others, you know. And yet they sacrifice it by having them engage in an actual romance. You know that that develops into an actual romance, which I feel like that's the YA part coming. Eh. I feel like you know what I mean. I feel like that's like the part that those kinds of fans need in order to. Eh, I guess. In order to get the team, the team Peta oh, and the team Gale hashtag oh, going. Oh shit. You know I mean? Okay, well once well once again, I'm not. Well, I'm Team Finnick. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not apologizing for liking these books, even okay. though I understand. You don't need that, is an, that. That is an unfortunate side effect of these books, which I think are great. Otherwise, yeah, it I should be I mean, mentioned. I don't, I don't care that, <laughs> that that we know these movies are marketed for certain audiences. When I saw Dallas Buyers Club at an eight o'clock showing, my wife and I said, "You know what? Let's just see. Let's just go see Hunger Games, even though we have an hour drive to get home, and it was an eleven o'clock movie." We said, "Screw it, let's watch it." So we did, and we enjoyed it. Right? We enjoyed both movies to a certain extent. The, the trailers in front of both movies were remarkably different yes yeah, so literally every movie i want to see kind of at least that was in front of dallas buyers club we had oh well, it was nebraska it was um american hustle it was her even lone soldier i think mm, i don't know if it's going to be war porn or good i've heard both i've heard so it's, I, i've heard it's good actually from a couple yeah, things that i like i'm probably going to see lone soldier at some point yes so I'm like, like, yeah. I'm like so like there's these movies I'm like, holy crap, all these movies look good. I fucking Frankenstein. Um, oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> sexy Frankenstein. Fuck you God, so okay. much. This, uh, okay, it's if anyone wants to, to see aired. this movie, if it, I, I am challenged. If anyone's going to see this movie, I don't Stop like it. Stop listening to this podcast. <laughs> Not because it looks like a terrible um, cash grab, but because his name is The Creature. Not Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein is the guy who made him. You wouldn't go, I, Frankenstein, you, Jane. 
<laughs> no, it's not. I'm so mad at this. It's That's so bad. That's the title of the podcast. I Frankenstein you, Jane. <laughs> but oh, and then Divergent, which supposedly is oh uh, my no- god. Oh god. Now I supposedly Sandy the book- bless her fucking heart. I I, I I'm guess not, I'm not holding her against against the fire for this. Oh, the book, I guess, is Christ. okay though. Like I've heard that the, the the young adult book is like you know uh, at least almost as good as Hunger Games. I'm never gonna read it, so I, I don't know if it's any good or not. Yeah, I I'm mean, just like, so I'm, sick of YA adaptations. Oh, I agree. So expensive. They even went with the visual presentation of fucking Hunger Games. Like it looks the same. It looks <laughs> the same. <laughs> like and I, and I've heard that the book is different enough. Like people who've read it, like I've had plenty of my family's read it, and they say, you know what, it's better than Twilight. Like, but the movie looks so bad. Like it's just, it was marketably different how the trailers matched up. Um, like you you could tell what movies are marketed towards what people, because if anyone sees I Frankenstein, I'm just going to turn around and not talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? That when I, as soon as I saw the the big card, cardboard cutout for uh, Divergent at my theater, I just uh, I was immediately reminded of the host last year, which oh, was God. like the next you know Stephanie Meyer adaptation. Like this mm-hmm. is just going to be the host all over again. Like you know, and it, it might even be like in another one like that, the Mortal the Instruments. Mortal Instruments City yeah. of Boners. Yeah. <laughs> That is that flopped, and that flopped. Funny Thank God it flopped. It was. I'm so glad it did because it was so funny. The confidence they had in it. There's like, this is gonna be it. This is gonna be the next YA craze. You know, like we're gonna have like all of our hashtags. But then it just it just tanked, and that made me so glad because we don't need any more of those. You know, the Hunger Games. I'll give it some credit, but that's it. That's all we need right now. We only need one at a time. We had Harry Potter that finished. Now we have Hunger Games. Hopefully Lily Collins has enough money to get some tweezers because she needs to, she needs to fix those fucking eyebrows, man. <laughs> you know what? I, I I hate I Frankenstein, and then I thought the trailer was so bad for Divergent. I would support that homophobe and see Ender, Ender's Game eight thousand times before I would. Oh no, no. I mean, I I, I don't think Ender's I don't think Ender's Game looked looked that great either. But I but it but I, but but, but it's better than Divergent. <laughs> Yeah, like I mean, I at least I, supposedly in Ender's Game, I'll probably see it eventually because the, the writer actually doesn't get any money from the movie. He already sold the rights. All but right. we, we really but, need to see, we, we really need to talk about the act of killing. Yes, but I, I hear Harrison Ford's good in Ender's Game. I will say that. All right, yeah. uh, all right. Um, besides the shit we're gonna cut out, we're, we're at two hours and four minutes, and I have the most notes for the act of killing than any other movie. But that's because I expected to be the only one to talk about it. Uh, Danny, you're here. We got. Let's keep this to at least five minutes. Okay, yeah, because that at, yeah, at most, okay. I mean. Yeah, I know what you're trying to say. Yeah, that. <laughs> this has gone on. Okay. Um, I already have a synopsis written now, so I'll just write it. In the 1965, 1965, uh, the Indonesian government was overthrown by the military, targeted, and they targeted any opponents of military, the military dictatorship, by labeling them communists, including union members. Farmers, intellectuals, and the and, and also the ethnic Chinese that resided in Indonesia. Between 1965 and 1966, military-approved gangster-led death squads killed over one million of these quote-unquote communists. Uh, and the the most notable of these is a gangster by the name of Anwar Congo, which we follow the most throughout the film. Uh, also, um, Adi Zulkadri was also. A very notable gangster. Um, these gang, and they were promoted from selling 
Uh, this is really interesting. They're promoted from selling movie tickets on the black market. Apparently that was a business. Um, to leading the most notorious of these communist death squads. Uh, with Anwar Congo himself personally killing around a thousand people. And basically the concept of this documentary, The Act of Killing, is that the directors of this film, one of which had to be anonymous, because I assume that because he was Indonesian and some of the people, some of the Indonesian natives that worked on this film had to be anonymous because this film is somewhat controversial. The directors of this film invited Anwar and his associates and a few of the other big gangsters to recreate and stage some of his, you know, I guess favorite killings and memories of his killings in various cinematic styles. So you get uh, westerns, uh, like a kind of like a horror film, um, like a film noir section, even a musical number, believe it or not. I, I thought this film was mind-blowing. Yeah, just in, 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 in the way a documentary, a stripped-back documentary can be, you know. I don't want to oversell it or anything. But I think this this is... Uh, well, well, Danny, why don't you talk about how what you liked about it? Yeah, you know, just to get the issues out of the way. I mean, it, it is a little overlong. Like, there's just parts that they, they kind of... there's it. Yeah, it's not too much, but there's little some parts in the middle where it it, it kind of repeats itself a little bit too much. Um, I just wanna I just wanna like get these small things out of the way. It's not perfect, but it is extremely powerful because you get to see there's so much juxtaposition first of all um, of the the way they they justify killing uh, and it, it they're able to lead such happy lives and it shows like. One of the earliest scenes is like a, one of the Anwar Congo shows how to kill how the one of the ways he killed people, and then after he with the wire, um, yeah, with the wire, yeah, and then after he does that, he's just like, yeah, you know, like you know, sometimes it's a little hard, but then what I would do to like get over it is just like I would you know drink or like smoke weed or like you know do ecstasy or you know, and then I just dance and sing, and then there's like this scene, it's like 30 seconds long, of just like him just like singing and dancing like it's like just really subtle but like it's like it just shows like such a weird um contrast in in his emotional like comfort uh, as opposed to um what he's actually doing a lot of the gangsters are like really boastful and even kind of nostalgic about being killers like those are are the good old days which was kind of oddly funny but then you know some some of them have notice, noticeable like shame over it, and then the, the, some of them, yeah, I mean this film really does get a lot of different perspectives, and some of them don't think it's anything to really to really be proud of. It's just something that had to happen for them in their minds anyway. And then Anwar Congo yeah. himself has uh, obviously the most complicated uh, reaction to this, and it's the one yeah. the film that the film discovers the most, and re- he's conflicted. And he feels like he has to justify his deeds in a way, but he's also very haunted by it. And it, it humanizes Congo and a lot of the other gangsters, which is super hard to do tastefully because these are people that actually committed these horrible atrocities 50 or so years ago. And, you know, a lot of the gangsters are really excited about doing this film. Some want to make sure it doesn't expose the truth. But some people are like, yeah, I want to talk about the killings because they're great. Killing all these people, yeah. it was awesome. 
<laughs> yeah, and it, and it shows the way that they justify that has a lot to do with the propaganda, you know. And they and they show, um, you know, the rallies where you know there's the leaders of this organization like um, speaking to all these people and you know communism bad like us good you know and like everyone's yeah. just like yeah you know i feel so meaningful whenever i kill a communist you know and they have these propaganda videos they would show where uh it's like like uh i don't remember exactly the details like a communist uh there's like a daughter of someone who got killed and it's just like oh you know there was that communist and like it's supposed to be like this yeah you know yeah it's i don't remember the details but basically um they even acknowledge, like, you know, this was pretty manipulative. Um, the, and, the, film uh, it's, the film itself? The, the, the Anwar and that group, they, they acknowledge oh, that that, yeah. that old propaganda film was manipulative. Yeah, they're like, this, was, this made the communists look yeah, like worse. I mean, you know? I mean, I think a lot of them knew that they were wrong and that yeah. you know, the communists actually were not the, aggressor, the aggressors they were, but yeah. they had to keep the public kind of – they had to keep the public fooled. And kind of brainwashed yeah. into believing the opposite. I mean, there's this, ah, there's this really great scene where they go on this like, uh, it looks like a daytime talk show, like, like Indonesia is equivalent to like Ellen right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, oh man, it, it's I, I can't even I can't even explain it. It's just such a such a mind fuck of a scene because it just shows how. Yeah casually the public takes to i'm talking about how many communists they've killed but that's because yeah. they've been so just fooled by their own government into, yeah. into believing that the com you know communist bad yeah and it, and it speaks to the nature of killing uh, mass killing in general and i think you know it's we, we we look at it as if it's so absurd and yet you know we've we as a society have celebrated a lot of uh deaths you know and and a lot of that has to do with the way um, these people have been presented in the media. Um, and, then, you know, it's not like a hugely surprising um, like revelation, but the way the film presents it um, just puts it into perspective so effectively. Yeah, and it almost seems like the director's intentions for some might be a little bit nefarious because they kind of mm. had to, like, uh, maybe not necessarily trick some of the gangsters, but act ambivalent so as – because they, can't, they, they couldn't go to these gangsters – and say, hey, we're going to make a movie exposing you guys for, you know, being crooks, basically. Yeah, I mean, exactly. so, so they had to either act ambivalently or act supportive, you know, probably yeah. behind the scenes. Um, yeah, and it, and to build off that, it's interesting how uh, the, the filmmaker, um, I think Joshua Oppenheimer, he uh, yeah. kind of questions Anwar Congo at some point, and he's kind of prodding him. Um, and, and definitely criticizing him, but in a way that isn't so direct that it would, you know, completely turn him off. You know, it's, I think Anwar's arc is, is fascinating. Anwar um, is legitimately one of the greatest characters you're going to see on a movie this year, and he's yeah. real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the thing is, like, uh, b because the directors had to be kind of ambivalent or, you know, just straight up kind of fooling to the gangs to a lot of the gangsters I, they they really had to let the people speak for themselves and that created a huge lack of manipula manipulation and you know audience lecturing that i really i really loved yeah and that i i feel like some documentaries can get too caught up in and this yeah. film was the exact opposite of that and I, I i feel like this is a film that really depicts you know the past and 
how film can shape it and how the past can be composed can be altered and really and, and really be you know how a whole country can be lied to about about moments of the past and that that kind of brought it home to me uh, th- that made me think of, about America and how this this kind of thing can happen in America and, and uh, that was that was about it that was about all I can say <laughs> I don't know why I yeah. paused there I paused right there it's okay I really um, want to see this movie yeah, I, I think you would love it, and I highly recommend it to, to anyone interested at all in uh, a great documentary. Um, it's one of my favorites of the year, so... Definitely, uh, yeah. Okay, so we're at 2.15. Um, TJ, you want to do Wajda really quick? Yeah, um, I recently watched uh, Wajda. It had about a week run at my local art house theater, the Tivoli, which is... Uh, actually, it might be closing soon, so... Unless they can raise some money on Kickstarter, so... I'm hoping. And, and actually, it looks like they'll, they'll probably be fine. But but uh, uh, Watch does getting a lot of uh, a lot of uh, buzz right now because it is uh, Saudi Arabia's first submission to the foreign language Oscar category and it is directed by a woman, which is incredible not only incredibly important uh, hit film history wise for Saudi Arabia, but actually incredibly important to the film because it is about the relationships that women have um, in Saudi Arabia, especially the young girl that stars in the film as Wajda herself because it is uh, it is the title role played by uh, Wad Mohammed and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing any names because I didn't practice these ones but um, it's about her relationship with her mother and slightly with her father and also slightly w- with her young male friend and sort of all the trouble she gets into she's kind of a, a Huck Finn Tom Sawyer character and she's constantly getting into trouble disrupting the the religious institution at her school her all-girls school because um, she's tr- she's tr- she participates in a religion club in which she has to recite from the the Quran, uh, so she can buy a bike, which girls do not ride bikes in yeah. Saudi Arabia. Or um, drive. For, oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, until recently, uh, I guess they recently. Oh, yeah. uh, but 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 there's a big you know you know controversy there. What? But but the movie itself, directed by um, Haifa Al Mansur again, mispronunciation probably, but she is really interested in telling this very realistic story about this little girl. It hits a lot of the typical dramatic arcs that you would expect in a movie like this, but you care about the character. It kind of reminds me a bit about the same tone, except for maybe a little more lighthearted than um, last year or the year before is Monsieur Lazar, the, the French-Canadian movie, um, which, was a, which is a very good movie in its own right. And that movie is probably a little more serious, but it reminds me of that movie because it has fantastic ch- child actors. It makes me wonder why America got shorted on the whole ch- children actor front because <laughs> some of these foreign language actors are amazing. And yep. I would say the, the, the girl in this movie, Mohammed, she is so good. She is charismatic. She carries the movie, even though the direction, and even more than the direction, I think this is a writer's movie, are really solid. I really recommend this movie. It doesn't get swallowed by the whole backstory of being the first m- movie directed by a woman. Uh, Saudi Arabia and being submitted for the Oscar, it, it works on its own right, and it's a very good movie. I, I strongly recommend watched as a short little plug for the movie. Sweet, cool. All right, so man, this is a long one. Yeah, but hopefully we entertained. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks to everyone. Uh, thanks to everyone that watched. Be sure to, if you watch this on iTunes, please rate and subscribe, and even review if you feel like it. And be sure to check out all of our nice little posts over at 
speakers and screens over at speakersscreens.tumblr.com. Thank you very much, and bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Okay. I thought that was good. I thought we had a good yeah, podcast.
Okay, so that was it. I thought that was good. Cool. I thought we had a good yeah, podcast. 